Hi, and welcome to Still Loading, a podcast dedicated to exploring leadership for the digital age. My name is Ilona Brannan, and I am your host for this exploration and adventure. I have been fascinated by us humans and how we develop and the interplay with technology for over 20 years now, and I am so excited to be here with you. Leadership is a huge topic, which is so important to be able to create a future world that we want to be part of. And if you are someone who leads an organization, team, project, or simply looking to develop yourself, then this is the podcast for you. So strap on in, get set, and let's disrupt the leadership space to create better leaders for all of us. Now that's definitely worth listening to. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Still Loading Podcast. I am delighted to be introducing my guest this week, Rosa Wang. And Rosa is an amazing researcher and she's been working in the development sector and she was in investment banking for a long time. She's just released a book and I'm going to ask her to introduce a little bit more about it, but I've loved the book. So please, Rosa, share yourself with everyone on the podcast, please. Thank you. And it's great to be here. Yes, as you said, I'm Rosa Wong. For the past 17 years or so, I've been working in an area that I'd call sort of a blend of social entrepreneurship and economic development. And more specifically, uh, most recently, I was the global director of digital financial services for a microfinance group called Opportunity International. And there, what we were trying to do is to really introduce the mobile phone and to bring tools to people in need and those at very low income levels. And most of the work was done in select countries in Africa and in rural parts of India. So Rosa, should we start with what is the digital divide and how can people in developed parts of the world better understand its significance? I think of the digital divide as people who are on the wrong side of having either their own device or access to digital information and digital services. In other words, they might not have their own phone, or if they do have a phone, it might not be connected in such a way that they would stream information. And what this means is that all of the many services that those of us in more developed parts of the world benefit from, whether it's financial services, health services, information about weather, about news, and so forth, they really are cut off from access to that. And I think it's important for people in developed areas to understand that this is starting to be one of the most important divides to close, and that so much of the divide that's left, especially with respect to the penetration of mobile phones, is about women and is about women being on the wrong side of that. Fantastic. And can you share about your new book that you've just released that I enjoyed reading intensely? (laughs) Yes, thanks so much. So the book is called Strong Connections, Stories of Resilience from the Far Reaches of the Mobile Phone Revolution. And it covers intensively the period of 2012 to 2018. It covers this whole journey of how I was working to bring the mobile phone and mobile technologies to people living in poverty, particularly women. Uh, But it also does this through the arc of my own journey. So there's a bit of personal story from my early days in Mississippi. Really, it's about how I became what I describe in the book as an accidental technologist. So really the, the entrance into that, which was more about learning things on the ground rather than having an intention or a degree in, in technology or anything like that. Yeah, and I have to say, through reading the book, I, I loved the fact that it was a personal narrative as well. So it really brought to life the experiences of the work that you did, but also your own 
in, in, in a sense, leadership development journey throughout the book, like how you changed and what you learned along the way. So I found that really, really uh, a wonderful experience and a joy to read. Going to the book then, just quickly, there was one statistic that kind of blew my mind and it's in the first sort of chapter, but it was around bicycle ownership and mobile phone ownership. So the one here that I wrote down was as of last year, so I imagine this was like 2019 when you were writing a book, there were 5.5 billion owners of mobile phones and only 1.5 billion bicycle owners. And when I read that, I realized that the book is all about the mobile phone impact and how it's really an incredible tool for change across the world that we've all seen and ubiquitous in our sort of modern developed world. But equally, it's such an agent for change in developing countries. Could you share a bit more about your work in that field? Yeah, so really, you know, one of the things that struck me, and and this is sort of highlighted throughout the book, is just how pervasive the mobile phone is. And, you know, it is a sophisticated electronic device, but has penetrated into areas where people live without the benefit of electrification. So they don't have electricity in their households, probably don't have running water, and yet they will buy the phone. And so when I started seeing this, particularly I Uh, recite an anecdote from early days in 2002 in Kenya, when I saw a Maasai warrior, you know, very, very deep into Maasai territory with a very sophisticated phone. I frankly noticed it because it was was shinier and slicker looking than the one that I had. We see the, the mobile phone being used everywhere. And I think one of the lessons that we see with technology development is that if there are services that are not available, you can have Digital tools, in this case, you know, the phone can displace a lot of things that were not there. And so in many ways, you know, people talk about, oh, like phones are everywhere, you know, in in the US, all across Europe and the UK. And yet these countries and these places had good infrastructure. They had relatively good communications of other forms, relatively good transportation. But when you go to a place like into a rural area of Tanzania, where the transport is very difficult and very costly for these villagers or these farmers. And, you know, the ability to contact, say, a supplier or the ability to find out what price of tomatoes are in the next village. Those are the kinds of things that can have such a huge impact. And that's one of the reasons that all of these people would express to me, yes, they would save significant amounts of money or they would save, they would pull together the friends and family money because they saw the phone not as an accessory, but as a business tool and also as something essential so that they could improve you know, the way they were living. Yeah, I noted that a few times with the stories with the different women who run their own small businesses, how important and integral it became to almost like expanding and building on like a single person operation to actually building a business. And it got me thinking about, you know, how such a such an investment, right? So the, the proportion of the money that they were earning to the investment that they needed to make in the mobile phone is quite great in some occasions. It was almost half of the money that they were actually making throughout the year, wasn't it, for some of the devices that they were investing in? It's quite significant. And I think that's actually one difference in the phone versus other kinds of things. You know, we've seen a lot of innovations that are attempting to, to help improve the lives of the people at the very bottom of the economic pyramid. And you have things like, for example, cook stoves or improved things that would improve on kerosene lamps, you know, solar powered devices and so forth. And all of those are, of course, helpful and beneficial. 
and might help you to save a bit of money. I think one of the reasons that the phone is so sought after, including in very low income households, is because it's seen as a tool that can help you contribute to earning more income. So it can help you earn more and further your business. And so it isn't just a way to save a bit or to, uh, you know, on the margin, maybe have a little bit more comfort. It's a way to substantially earn more. We see this in, in throughout all the work with microfinance. It's really saying if people had a bit more money, that people are very, very clever, including, unfortunately, you know, they're having to live in circumstances of poverty, but if they just had a bit more money. And I think what the phone brings with it are examples of people using it to improve their earnings. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the, the almost like the gender divide in some countries between mobile phone ownership, where the husband or the head of the household who is a man would have a phone, but the woman wouldn't. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this really struck me. And this was when I was doing the work originally with Opportunity, which I started in, in about 2012, it was what we would call gender neutral. So, you know, we were obviously trying to bring training and knowledge about phones to both men and women. And the work continues and it, it still services men. But what I started to realize is that the gender disparity is one of the most challenging gaps that exists. And why are people on the wrong side of the digital divide? One of the scenes of the book takes place in Bhopal in India, where I was seated on the floor at what's called a trust group meeting. So these women have a small scale loan, about 14 women. And, you know, we stayed to ask questions and, and to probe a bit more in terms of their lives. And when I asked the 14 women, how many of you have your own phone or have a phone? Only two out of 14 had a phone. And this is much lower than I was expecting. I was expecting maybe half. But then when I asked, you know, does your husband or do you have a phone in the household? And they all replied, you know, yes, it's my husband's phone. And in this very poor area where both men and women at this age did not really have the chance to go to school. So there was a literacy issue across both genders, but the women really saw the phone as a tool of their husbands. And then when I would ask them, like, you know, are you allowed to use it? Uh, several women expressed that they didn't know how. And that's when we probed a lot of the challenges that if they don't have regular access or they don't think of the phone as a tool that might be shared within the family, that they really didn't have a chance to kind of learn a facility, even to type you know, a 10 digit number to call someone or to call for help or something. And they really seem to lack the confidence to want to do that. And so that really underpinned a lot of both the understanding about the gender issues that persist. It created a whole series of things that we did throughout the program, uh, first of which was, of course, to gather gender disaggregated data so that we could look and say how much of the digital divide would we explain by the gender gap. And then it changed virtually every element of how we approach things from training, from outreach sort of programs, as well as, you know, printed materials that we would do to help people, as well as very simple sorts of offerings and how we portrayed things. So we started having pictures where, where people might take, you know, brochures or something into a training where instead of depicting them showing a man how to use certain services, you would show a woman or you might show a, a woman trainer helping to teach another woman. And that really seemed to improve and to have much better traction among the women. And also I saw read in the book that it was great when it was female agents working at the different offices for the microfinance agencies, which I thought was really impactful as well, because then it's, it's less intimidating for the women to kind of get involved with those programs. 
Yeah, I think, you know, in some of the areas where we work, the program that's covered quite deeply is in the area of Bihar in India. And I think it's hard for people who are not accustomed to such an area to really understand when I say it's a patriarchal area, (laughs) kind of what that means. But typically it means that they had a lot of male agents, for example, who are there to assist with a financial transaction. But a woman on her own, it would not be seen as culturally uh, appropriate for her to go to a place of a male agent if she's on her own. So she may have to wait, you know, a couple of weeks until someone could escort her. And so just simply the presence of women as agents really changed that. And we also found, of course, that now the that program is continuing to run and continuing to do really well. And we find the person who's administering the entire program, they actually now have a preference for women agents. They find that the women agents tend to develop their businesses faster. So in other words, the early period where they're ramping up the work that goes faster, but they also find that women are more honest. So they have fewer complaints, fewer issues of things like fraud. We administered a grant to support the recruitment of women agents, and they're thrilled about recruiting more women because they said, no, the women agents are performing very, very well, and also they're less problematic. Well, you see, we're recording this, and it was International Women's Day a few days ago. It's so fascinating to think that, you know, there's similarities in all of these stories with just challenges that happen in any place for for women, right? So women are generally performing well in jobs, and I just wonder if there's probably a challenge within those organizations do those women become managers <laughs> or regional managers and is is it one of those things as well it really sort of makes me makes me think about lots of different things about that when I read the book I've mentioned this we, we were chatting just before we started recording the podcast but I love the fact that in th- scattered throughout beautifully kind of decorated almost is your own personal anecdote so a really beautiful one that I really sort of chuckled to myself when I read was when you mentioned that you were on out in the field to people who've not sort of worked in development sort of circles you kind of go to a location and you're you're there and it can be a very different environment to what you're used to and there might not be any like facilities shall we say and so you mentioned how in a group that you were with they were all sort of under 40 and they were men and they sort of forgotten about you where you can't necessarily go and pee behind a bush if you like. <laughs> Those sort of anecdotes throughout the book really helped me to feel like I was riding alongside with you on all these adventures and on all these projects. And when we got to the part where we were speaking to the women, as you said, in that example with the trust circle and they're giggling about all the secret squirreled money And I just thought that was delightful. You could almost hear them sort of chuckling, like I've got a secret little bit of money stashed away here. I've got it here. And one of them even laughed that she'd forgotten where she'd buried it in the garden. You know, it must have been such a a, a profound experience for you as you've gone through this career and your previous career to have met these people. And I think something that really hurt me during the book was when you mentioned in India, they got rid of the small notes they just the demonetization. And so I really felt for those women realizing that their their squirreled money was no longer worth anything. I mean, how did you, you know, process all these emotions with working with these groups of people across the world? Yeah, so thanks for saying that. I mean, one of the reasons I 
wrote the book in first person, which I think might be a little bit different than what people are expecting, is that I wanted to bring to it an authenticity. And the only way that I knew to do that was to actually write it in first person and to try to effuse it with with sort of the emotions. The instant that you're describing where, you know, I'm sitting in the trust circle with the women and they're talking about where do they hide their savings. And that made a big impact at the time. And then two days later, was the announcement of the demonetization. And so unlike something where you know you're you're viewing a major sort of political or economic event that happened across India in a sort of detached form, that became quite personal to me. And so I think part of the journey of writing the book and part of the purpose of writing the book was to actually open up this world. I know there are a lot of people who work in sort of development on the in the field, you know, on on what's called the front lines, doing the difficult work and very few people sort of talk about it that much outside. So it's sort of an insular kind of community and I think it was really an effort to bring some of these stories to a much broader audience and so that a broader audience can appreciate uh, the work that's being done but also the resiliency of the women that I've met. Uh, and I will say that Although it's a very emotional one, and and certainly the impact of the demonetization is still to this day, you know, heart wrenching when you think about it. People were given sort of two weeks to change their small bills. And, you know, the official government estimates that dozens and dozens of people died standing in the queue waiting to try to convert their small bills into electronic money. And only a few were able to do so. Part of what I sort of wanted to do was to bring the stories to people, to capture the resiliency of these women, and to also sort of show that these people that, you know, are sometimes described as kind of the global poor or in sort of generalities, these correspond to individual people, and they have very, very rich lives and very interesting stories. And, you know, when I'm in the field, I would not actually refer to one of these persons is poor because they don't see themselves as that. I've seen mistakes where someone new to the field goes and they said, well, you know, what is it like sort of being a poor person? They're like, I'm not poor. You know, I I work hard. I have my own business. There's a, a difference with that. There's a celebration of the resiliency. The other thing that strikes me about the women that I've met is their social networks are quite strong. And so, you know, the ability to form a social circle and receive the loans where where they are co-guarantors, that's all based on these these trust networks. But the social capital that exists in in these places is is quite phenomenal. And you can see that when they're talking about using their mobile phone to connect with their loved ones in various places and actually how supportive their extended family is they collectively pull the money together to invest in the phone it's remarkable really and I I do feel that the book is a celebration you know it's not a judgment or a tone of you know like oh poor them it's more like wow these are amazing people doing amazing things and they're so innovative and ingenious that you're like wow I need to learn from them There was something in the book that blew me away that I'm probably going to be taking away and using in the work that I do with my clients and and so on. But it's an idea called Adjoa. Can you explain Adjoa, please? (laughs) Yeah. So this was an intervention we did in Ghana. 
with our local partner, there are Opportunity International Savings and Loans, which operates as a microfinance bank. And basically, it was a series of voice messages that are transmitted on by the phone in local language, so in local vernacular. Uh, it was called Interactive Voice Response, or IVR, because the voice messages is sent to them, they can listen, and if they're interested in, say, hearing more or learning a bit more, you know, they might be invited to press one to hear the next part, or they might be asked a question. So they can interact. And this was a campaign that we did to try to increase savings behavior and try to encourage and and educate people about the importance of savings, but also to congratulate them if they uh, were successful in terms of making savings. We called the character that portrayed the messages, we called her Ajoa, which is a common Ghanaian name for for a woman. And the complete surprise to all of us who were involved was just how much people really liked Ajoa. So when we had a focus group, you know, we were asking people, well, what did you think of the IVR campaign? They they were like, well, oh, you mean Ajoa? Oh, oh, Ajoa is very friendly. And they would say things like, this makes me feel that my bank cares about me. You could have things like birthday messages or or things like Merry Christmas. So there can be messages that sort of impact and are tailored to the individual and to make them feel like, oh, my bank notices me. And increasingly, as we're seeing more and more services and activities are either digital or are through something like a third party, such as an agent, we're seeing more touch points are necessary. And something like the voice messages are a way to do that. It was delightful because I think there was a bit where some of the farmers had turned up with their savings and they demanded to see a Joe. And they were like, we want to see her. her." And I just think that's amazing. I live in London, right? So I get text messages all the time or you get content, you know, sharing with you best practice of whatever or like with my car insurance, like, you know, how to have a safe car in the winter, this sort of thing. But the voice messages, it really was an emotional connection they felt really cared for. And it got me thinking about the application of that in the work that I do with my clients. Like, can you put some voice messages in to really build a relationship with your clients or or customers in a deeper level because of that resonance with somebody's voice and hearing that message rather than it just being text or, or images? It was just a fascinating sort of thing to read. So thank you very much for sharing, you know, that project because it got me thinking a lot. And I just love the fact that they wanted to see a Joa. We demand to see her because they thought that, you know, she was real. And I just thought that was wonderful. So with your own journey, right? So we've talked about the book and, and about the experiences you've had, but you actually started way back as an investment banker in Hong Kong. So let's talk a little bit more about your own leadership development journey. This is quite a journey and a trajectory. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah, so I was in finance in both New York and Hong Kong, working as an investment banker for probably close to 13 years, up until uh, around 2002. By 2002, I'd made the decision that I wanted to sort of take some time off and explore, you know, different things. And I was relocating from Hong Kong again, back to the States. So that was sort of a major life change. And it was really from there, I would say there's a bit of serendipity that in in almost all of the kind of career paths that I've taken since then. I was called by a, a friend who said, you know, are you familiar with social entrepreneurs? And I'd heard the term, but I didn't actually know very much about it. And so I was like, well, tell me more. And she introduced me to an organization called Ashoka. 
And they were looking for a chief financial officer. And she thought that, you know, since I had a financial background, this might be something I could do. Um, and I was like, well, you know, a CFO um, job is really about, you know, the financial books, a lot of accounting and things. I'm not that interested in it, but I could come in and maybe pitch in, set up some systems there and learn a bit more about the organization. And that's when I learned about you know, this area of, of social entrepreneurship, or in other words, taking business sort of methods and professionalism and market sort of forces and applying them to some big global problems, whether it's environmental issues or maternal health or literacy and other things. That's when I became quite captivated. One major part of that change was to say, okay, I do have a set of financial skills, for example, how to do a business plan, how to do cost benefit analysis and so forth. And that's what I can sort of offer the world of social entrepreneurship. But also I had a lot to learn about the, the areas uh, within social entrepreneurship and how things got done effectively on the ground. And so I think a lot of my journey is about the combination of taking the skills and expertise that I'd accumulated, but being open to learning everything else I describe myself as an accidental technologist because it was while I was working with Ashoka Fellows that I uncovered or, or discovered that those that had massive scale or had been able to spread their amazing ideas beyond just one country or one area, they usually had some element of digital technologies. And that's when I became sort of immersed in terms of bringing together collaborations. We would invite some of the corporate sector that's involved within the mobile phone sector or some of the foundations that were supporting it and figure out ways to really harness more about digital technologies. And that's sort of the backdoor way of my beginnings of learning about technology. It's interesting because one of my, in one of my notes here with Ajoa, that was scalable that you said in the book, you underlined several times and, you know, thinking about then this social entrepreneurship and trying to use technology to improve like outcomes for people across the world. Do you think that this is something that kind of leaders need to be aware of about harnessing this scalable digital technology to make an impact? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that struck me as I was writing the book and I was checking the statistics about the growth of the mobile phone and so forth is just how fast it is, you know, really on an exponential scale when other things had happened more on a linear scale and, and so at a much slower pace. When I started looking for digital examples and encountering social entrepreneurs who were working in this, I would find very creative ways. So, for example, someone in, in Pakistan, they were teaching HIV awareness by creating a game that looked like cricket. Uh, so bringing together you know, things that would go over really well in Pakistan, but sort of gamifying. Um, the education about HIV prevention. You know, that's just one example, but I, I think that being creative about how you might use digital and knowing that now so many people have their own phones. So in a sense, that platform is already there, making the rollout very, very doable, very fast and very scalable. Brilliant. I wanted to sort of circle back to your, your own journey. What do you think has had the most impact on your own leadership development journey through the work that you've done? I think one of the things is learning to listen and learning to see things. I mean, a lot of what I would describe about the work that's covered in the book and also my work with social entrepreneurs is it, it comes more from the method that's called bottom up. So what on the ground actually works as opposed to someone, you know, higher up who might be an executive that might have 
you know, thought about things theoretically for a long time, trying to impose something top down. And I think that had a big influence in terms of the way that I looked at things and, and would roll things out. But it also ha- has a big influence in terms of having to be on the ground and really trying to listen to the people there on the ground and really trying to learn from those experiences. And I think you see you see this across all the people working in the field, that those who are there on the ground really, you know, because the conditions can be quite challenging, physical conditions, it can be sort of emotionally exhausting. But at the same time, you learn so much when you're there. And I found that the people with sort of a real longevity uh, might come in with a set of experiences and expertise, sort of a domain expertise that they could apply. But they were very open to learn about how it might be received or very open to learn about what are the local customs and local practices that would help something to succeed or possibly to fail. And I found that to be absolutely essential. Hmm. So it's almost like you have your own little toolkit, your own sort of almost utility belt from Batman, but you like, you you assess the situation. You don't just use any old thing. You actually think about what's going on around you and really listening to the experiences and the context to make it more relevant to, to then apply your skills. Yeah. And it's also taking things that work in one area and trying to transport it. So one of the challenges, of course, is that many of the, the rollout of, of digital is, is new, is relatively new in some of the places where we work. But I would always try to listen and to take examples from one place to another. So I'll give an example from Uganda. So when I was in the field in Uganda, I met up with one of the field officers and I would ask him, well, what is it like to introduce, you know, let's say how to use the phone or the phone menus to some of the women here? Because many of the women had a higher proportion of those with low literacy They were more intimidated, I think, by some of the services and more risk averse. And he had a really interesting technique, which was, you know, he would do a demo, but then he would say, if something goes wrong or your signal cuts off, you know, don't worry, your your money's not lost because they're trying to do a, a financial transaction. He's like, don't worry, your money's not lost. And if you have problems, he would write down on his business card, his personal mobile number. And he would say, here's my personal number, call me, which is unusual for for people to do. But then instead of sort of an education or even almost a hectoring or haranguing of someone about here's the third time I'm showing you how to use the menu, he's couching it in terms of a overall sense of reassurance. Like, don't worry, your money's not gone. And if you have problems, here's something to do. You can call me. And that seems like a relatively simple thing, but it's something that I've taken to, you know, other countries where we've gone. So I saw this in Uganda. I would tell the colleagues in Rwanda about this. And immediately you could say, oh, I never thought to offer my personal number. That would make a big difference because a lot of times when you're, when you're there in the village and, you know, you're the city person, the villagers think, oh, the city person, well, they're educated. Well, they don't really care about me and they're going to leave in an hour uh, and we'll never really see them again. And this is a way for, to say, oh, no, you can call me. I'm still here to support you and to help you walk through problems. And so from that, we also opened up and substantially increased the call centers uh, in all of the places where we worked, because we found that having someone on the other side of a line that could assist was something that did bring a great deal of reassurance. And then people were more willing to try, say, a new transaction or a new activity. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, that sense of personal connection you know, that really building relationships, it seems to be 
you know, it's it's always a simple thing, but it makes such a huge difference, it seems like. Just those little personal touches, like with a doja and then with giving someone your number and just making someone feel heard, listened to and cared about. There is a question here that I just would love to know the answer to, but is there one individual town or moment from your travels that has stayed with you the most and why? I think the the trust circle that you talked about where we were in Bhopal, that made an, a big impression because I had not been in India for about four years at that time. And so I was revisiting and kind of revising my sense of it. And, and it was, you know, a scouting trip, which was which was really good. And then it sort of bookended, of course, with the demonetization, which really underscored just how important it was to, despite the fact that there are so many challenges, it's really important to make progress, to try to to work with a group of women in the circumstances as those women. The thing that also strikes me just on a personal level from that story was the sense that when we walked in, I describe in the book how my colleague, who is a woman, and she's the CEO of this microfinance group, her name's Prasita. So Prasita instructed the men to leave. She said this way, you know, of course, everyone will be more candid. And then so we're all seated. And then she asks us to form a circle formation so everyone can see each other. And one of the women, you know, she grabs my hand and and she pulls me into the circle to sit next to her. And and you're basically very close. You're you're sort of touching. There's not a sense of personal space. And then I realized that one is because there are, you know, India is quite a multi-ethnic, multicultural place. And people from the Northeast especially do look East Asian. They would look physically a lot like me. And so she just assumed I was Indian. Very natural for people in India to speak all kinds of different languages and to need all kinds of interpreters. So the fact that I didn't understand Hindi was not unusual. And I was very much welcomed into the circle as one of them. And we had a very candid conversation. And I think just in a sense that I sort of was welcomed and belonged. I know a lot of people of different ethnic backgrounds will talk about their own experiences, you know, when they're not sort of of the majority culture uh, where they live, that despite the fact they have credentials or whatever, they, they feel a little bit separate or put aside. But here I was in a country and a culture and linguistic group that was absolutely not my own. Everything was quite different. And yet I was welcomed and welcomed into a very intimate conversation. I think that's beautiful. And it really kind of punctuates that theme that you have for the book of strong connections. It's almost like these little moments of connection are what builds, you know, a, a really be- a great program, a great experience. And, and you know, the, the connections that resonate with your heart as you take them away with your career with this trust circle. It's just remarkable, really. It's really wonderful. And I, I wanted to ask around your own the inspirational leader. So is there a leader who has helped you to kind of become the person you are today? As I said, I take the inspiration bottom up. So it's a lot of people that I've seen on the ground. If I were to sort of name someone, it would it would be someone represented by Ruth, the branch manager in Malawi, but also all of the sort of branch managers and others on the ground that she represents. So Ruth was someone who worked her way up from sort of a very entry-level job, but she noticed so many things on the ground and she's so powerful because she has the trust of her staff. When you're there, you can see it. You can see it in her performance targets. All of them worked really well, but you can see that she has a warm relationship with, with the customer base. So she would go out, she would shake hands with people. She would apologize if there were long queues, people had been waiting longer than they wanted. And she really had her finger on the pulse of things. I think it is remarkable in a place like Malawi, 
where again, there are many barriers for women. You know, you, you do have many of these strong women kind of rising up to positions of leadership. So I'm really quite inspired by women like her. Yeah, no, I totally get that. There were definitely moments in the book where I was like, wow, these, these women, as you say, it's a celebration of their resilience. And, and you can definitely feel that sort of punctuated through the book. With still loading this podcast, right? The whole purpose is to sort of explore leadership for the digital age. From your, you know, wonderful experiences and, and research, what do you think are trends that leaders kind of need to consider as we evolve into this next iteration of the digital age? The primary trend I think people need to have in the back of their minds is that things do not unfold the way you might expect or the way people predict. Uh, again, when I was researching the book, it, it did strike me that you know all of the estimates they had about the growth of the mobile phone, about how far it would penetrate, different uses were pretty much wrong and underestimated in most cases. And so I think that a digital leader really needs to anticipate that surprises will happen and to figure out how to seize onto some of the surprises and, and really harness those. And also anticipate that you can prepare as much as you want, but the, the dynamic nature of the digital arena is, is really one where it's better to be dynamic than it is to over-prepare on you know, something that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, for sure, with the mobile phone, in that part of the book where you were describing, you know, from almost Alexander Bell doing an experiment next door <laughs> with his assistant next door. So then there's more mobile phones in Uganda than there are light bulbs and more mobile phone users in India than there are users of toothbrushes. You know, and, and it's it's almost reached peak saturation, at least in the sort of developed world with smartphone usage. It just sort of stays, remains the same. Just 5.5 billion mobile phones, right? We've only got, what, 7, 8 billion on the planet? That's a lot of mobile phones. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're right. I think having that ability to, you know, almost be open to the unexpected and that, that things won't necessarily flow in the direction that you, you would say makes sense. Like with the pandemic, you know, there's going to be other outside forces where you're not even going to be sure now it's completely normal to be working from home all the time and for us to be connecting remotely and building relationships remotely, totally and utterly fine. Whereas if you'd said that two, three years ago, people would be like, that makes no sense. You must be in person. You have to do it this way. So yeah, the digital age does throw up these curveballs that you've got to just sort of almost ride like a bit of a surfboard and just go with it. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, I think part of it, is also understanding one of the really exciting things about digital is it's about networks of collaboration. And so there are so many other people, you know, from people who run the infrastructure to other people developing apps to other people offering support services or educational services. And so a big part of being successful, I think, is learning how to harness forces of collaboration and to get people. And it's not about building everything yourself and owning everything yourself, where I think historically, you know, things were much more vertical and, and you could try to own and control everything. Now the ability to control everything is, is not really there, but you have more of an ability to persuade people to work with you. And why is it that they should be a collaboration partner? And I think that that means that the ability, again, to reach a lot of people is much greater than it used to be. But it does require a different sort of skill set. No, I completely agree. And the analogy I often sort of think about when I'm thinking about leadership for the digital age is almost like a shoal of fish. 
or a murmuration of birds where you're all flowing together. So one fish, essentially the leader, will all like influence the rest of the shoal to go that way rather than be at the very front, almost instead of like a, a geese triangle formation. Even they take turns, to be fair. Maybe there's a lot we can learn from nature about almost a different style of leadership than we're used to. This has been a delightful conversation and it, it's been a pleasure to get to know you as well and read the book. The thing I always ask my guests at the end is what are the three top tips that you would give leaders for the digital age? And this can come from your own experiences, your research, your book, whatever you want, but the three things you think leaders for the digital age need to know. So if I had to narrow it down to three things, the first one I would say is to listen. Uh, in other words, to have feedback and to have areas and loops where you are getting feedback. There was a social entrepreneur once who had designed a different kind of lamp, a solar-based lamp to try to displace kerosene lighters in Nepal. And he talks about he had a 10-year warranty on his lamps, not because he thought that they would last for 10 years, but because he wanted people to bring them back and he, he would replace them for free. Because his thing was, if it was broken, he wanted to know how it was broken and to learn from that. So I think feedback is very important and listening, you know, ultimately to the customer or the end user. The second thing is a theme that that I think we've been talking a lot about, and that is to be open to learning new things. As much as you can apply, you know, what you have learned or do know, there will always be new things. So for me, that's one of the really fun things about digitals is every day there's something new to sort of learn or new areas to explore. And I think you need to enter into that with an attitude of being open to learning. The final thing I would recommend to people is to have a good imagination. And by that, I'm saying that so much of the mobile and digital revolution was underestimated because people could not imagine how might a person in a non- electrified village use an electronic device? How might a person with very low income where a device looks to be a very significant fraction of what they might earn in a, in a year? How could that go there? Or how could it be used in areas like agriculture? How could it be used in things like offering health services? And I think that the limitation really comes with the lack of imagination, that once you see the various creative ways that people have used it in all of the things that I'm speaking about, Additionally, in areas that people care very much about, like the environment, like climate change and conflict resolution and so forth, that the limitation, again, is the imagination. So I would tell people to listen carefully, learn every day and open your imaginations. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Rosa. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you and to read the book and to understand a bit more about your research and your own journey. So thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast and for sharing all the best with the next next book. I'm sure that's coming. <laughs> thank you. It's been great to be here. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support this podcast, please share it with others. Share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone you think who might benefit from listening. Post about it on social media as well or leave a rating and review and please subscribe to catch all the latest updates and episodes. You can also find us on Instagram at Still Loading Podcast. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Bye.